Welcome to the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California. It's Thursday and Thursday afternoon. I'm with John Zipper, my co-host. Thank you so much for making this all happen and, and, and helping us create space for the inclusion of LGBTQI thought leaders as well as other thought leaders you know, in our communities to have this uh, intersectional approach to the conversations we need to be having about social justice issues. Thank you, John. <laughs> We're glad you're here. You're, you're the person to pull it all together. So, yeah, it's uh, you know I was thinking back because uh, in media they always look at things in quarters and how things are going in quarters. And since there's a large, large radio uh, giant who is going through bankruptcy, this always put things into perspective for me. So, how well are you doing since three months has passed? Mm -hmm. um, and we've been doing this Thursdays. Uh, first, it started at 10 o'clock in the morning, and now it's at uh, 12 noon. I think we've had some incredible people come through the club. Some great conversations. I mean, Dolores Huertek and folks, um, other folks, and, and on a bunch of topics. That's right. Well, we'll get today's program started. We have some incredible guests. I'm really excited to be speaking with them. Uh, it, it all started with me just Googling this idea of like, hey, can I legally go out into the streets and pass out hot dogs? Because on my wife's birthday, I said, what do you want to do? And she just moved here from Thailand. And she's like, man, so shocked by the homeless population in the Bay Area. And it, it, it saddens her every day to see it. So she's like, let's just go to Costco, cook up some hot dogs and pass it out. And I felt bad because, you know, I started thinking in my mind, um, all these things like, well, what if we get jailed or what if we get fined? Like, are, is it okay for us to do this? And then I was very, very, very uh, disappointed with my liberal self that uh, don't be a coward. You can go out there and do it. So upon my research, I found some heroes who did not have the cowardness or, you know, uh, the feelings of being a scaredy cat like myself. They actually went out and they uh, created what's called the People's uh, Breakfast of Oakland and then doing some more research about them. They also host a really cool, or I should say, hella cool <laughs> podcast. And so we've got the stars of the Hella Black podcast with us. I'd like to introduce you to Blake Simons and Delancey Parham. Welcome to the show, Hello. guys. Thank you so much for having us. No, yeah, yeah. It. Yeah, right. like I said, it's genuine. I'm really excited to speak to you guys. So let's get the intros out of the way. I mean, how did you guys meet? What was your first date like? How did the <laughs> romance start? <laughs> uh, I met Blake through an article that I was writing for Berkeley Side, which is an online publication out in Berkeley. I was doing, I was covering um, some of the, I guess, if, like the protests or some of the organizing that some of the, that the Black Student Union was doing at Cal, uh, mostly around like getting the name changed of a couple of buildings up there. And they had a other, a, another list of demands, right? Yeah, we have like 10 demands. Yeah. So I was covering that story for a, job, uh, for, art, for a publication that I was writing for, and I just reached out to him for a comment. And I remember he was um, like, I could write it. I could write it if you want me to. And I'm like, hell no, ain't nobody finna write do my job for me. <laughs> that was like our first interaction. So I um, had to interview him from that. Yeah. And then, yes, yeah, I don't, I can't really recall. It was just super organic though. We just ended yeah. up building from there. It was an org that he was working with at the time. He asked me if I wanted to come be a staff writer for them, just based off, I guess, my work that we had done and also the work that I had done. And then um, the article that I did on him, I guess he felt like I would be a good fit for that organization. So that's kind of how it started. Am I, I almost that? didn't respond to the article too, <laughs> like because Berkeley side misquoted me a couple times. So I was like, uh, oh, 
I don't know if I'm gonna do it, but Delancey sounds black, so I'm gonna, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go ahead and support you. Uh, so that's kind of how it happened. But I almost didn't even respond. <laughs> yeah. So, at what point did you guys decide to do a podcast, and how did you formulate the type and the tone and all that stuff that you wanted to do in it? We kind of just did it. Like, I don't. It wasn't like some well, you know, thought out thing. I would say, like, yeah, we kind of just not. decided, just like. We want to make political education accessible, you know, because not everyone has time to read. And, like, our podcast would have like, our normal conversations that we have. So I think it, it just kind of just started, like, really organically. You know, it wasn't just like, all right, we're going to write this proposal out, and on this day we're going to do this, on this day we're going to do that. It was like, we're just going to do it. And I know we both had the desire to get, like, more content out. We had both kind of had already, like, established ourselves as writers, mm. but that's, like, super hard to sustain, right? Like, writing writing powerful pieces is super hard to do on a consistent basis, at least for myself. Um, so we were trying to figure out a way, how could we get more content out for the, um, this one we were with the African Black Coalition, we had like our blog or whatever. We were like, how can we get more content on the blog, but not necessarily be writing? And we said, like, okay, we could do a podcast, which is a lot more accessible and I would say easier than writing. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, that's uh, that's what I love about podcasts or, or uh, this form, this form of media and having conversations is we can just be a little bit more real about some of the stuff that we're facing. And so let's talk about Oakland. Let's talk about, yes, you guys talk a lot about Oakland. You talk about the leaders of Oakland, if you will. And for a lot so-called of people, leaders. yeah, so-called <laughs> leaders. Yeah. And so for a lot of people who are new to the Bay, you know, we'll look at Oakland like, wow, it's like an explosion of cultural experiences and diversity and art. But if you've lived in, um, you know, the Oakland area for a long time, you've seen some of the changes. I'd like for you guys to talk, you know, uh, openly about some of those changes and how they're examples of uh, racism or a, a racist structure uh, for many people who don't even, might not even see their complicity in, I'm going to use the word Robin from people who have been there for a long time. Well, for me, I'm born and raised in Oakland. Um, and I would say the thing that's standing out most to me is just like the, the, um, the decline in the black population. That's what's going to stand out most. Like, it's just not as many black people that were there when I was growing up, even like my own family. Like my mom just had to move out of Oakland and she was living there for 40 plus years, you know, just had to move all the way to Rio Vista or some shit like that. I don't even know where that is, like outside past Antioch. But I always say that's the biggest thing is just seeing like how the black population has declined and the black folks that are staying there, their, their current living conditions, right? Like if you even look at the, the encampments in Oakland, and by, I mean like the houseless encampments, right? Um, most of those are consisted of black folks. So it's just like for the people that do get to stay in Oakland, the living conditions aren't that well. And the black population is declining. That's what's sticking out most to me. And of course, OPD is still on some bullshit. I think it's the same issues Oakland has been having like since the 60s. It hasn't really changed, in my opinion. I mean, it has changed in terms of like how big the police force is, how militarized they are. Like, you know, they have AR-15s. They got these big old tanks now. Went through like, what, five police chiefs in the matter of like <laughs> two or three days, right? And like literally sex trafficking by the people who are quote unquote serve, to serve and protect, right? So these these issues aren't new, you know, within within Oakland, especially the police department and um, with gentrification, just seeing like the, I think the houses camps is the most visible, visible, right? And just seeing, it's like black elders too, you know, yeah. like, so that's like a trip to see, you know, like it's just like a lot of black folks who are like older, you know? So it's like, you don't see too many young folks, but you see just people, like vulnerable people, seniors in our society, right? And people literally just drive past them, you know, like just seeing that just 
driving past them all the day and people not doing anything. You know, even the, the city, right? That's always say so-called leaders. Like, how do you call yourself a leader of a city and you got people on the streets? And you got bulldozers, right? And you yeah. got police officers coming in and, like, terrorizing, harassing these folks, right? So... Because they have plan for that real estate. Right. Um, have, especially... Are, now, are you also a, an Oakland native or... I'm not from Oakland, yeah. no. Okay. Um, in particular, because you've been there your entire life. Uh, have those leaders changed? Have they gotten any better or worse? Or is it the same and have they never uh, been dealing with these issues well? I don't know. I can't really speak on like past leaders in Oakland just because my like my state of consciousness when I was a kid in Oakland, I didn't really know any better from like what I've been able to read and do my research on. Mm-hmm. Nah, it hasn't really changed. And it's a system, right? It's not people. It's the system we're talking about. Like it doesn't matter who's the mayor of Oakland. The system is still going to function the way the system was designed to function. I can come, I can become mayor of Oakland, but the system still is going to do what the system's supposed to do. Let's talk about systems really quick and and. Uh, you know, give some examples. I mean, what does that actually mean? Because a lot of people don't understand that. And when they think about, like, racism, it's really easy to um, individualize, you know, what racism is or make it personal, right? And so what are some examples? I think some of the stuff that you guys have brought up is, yes, the uh, the homeless crisis um, is can be an example of racism. What else? Everything, <laughs> like, like literally, like I mean, yeah, I would say everything from housing to food to to policing, like everything in this society is connected back to racism. Like, if we're thinking about this land, this land that we're on right now, this is stolen land from Native Americans, right? Like, and now, how many like Native tribes do we see? You know, like what is Native representation? Like, and we're literally on Native land, so like this land was stolen. You know, so like I think it's 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 everything um, from schooling. Like, there's lead in the water, like we talk about Flint, but there's lead in the water at Mac in West Oakland, right? So, like, literally environmental, like, this bridge <laughs> that we're looking at right now, like, the people who live closest to the bridge in West Oakland are, are black and brown folks, right? So, thinking about how many cars travel past to come to San Francisco, to come to these tech companies, and who's breathing that in? You know, like, kids born with asthma, you know, generations. So, I think racism, it, it's not a individual question. Like, it's not an individual question, right? Some people are like, oh, you know, I'm not racist. I have a black friend. It's like, well, that's great. I got a white friend. Like, what do you mean? You know what I'm saying? Um, so racism is never like an individual act. It's systemic. You yeah. know, so people say, oh, there's good cops. I'm like, how can you be a good cop when OPD is trafficking underage minors? And your whole department is complicit in that. And you just murdered people and you just covered it all up and you didn't say anything. You so know. would your opinion be that, you know, because um, we talked about OPD, we almost we almost had Pete Nix here uh, who did his documentary, The Force, and he will be here um, sometime <laughs> later. It's my fault, actually. I get the schedules mixed up because I forgot the show had moved to, to noon. Um, but people look at, when we talk about the issues of the police force, so Oakland's a great example in which they went um, into federal investigation, right, uh, for the scandals or the civil rights infractions or violations that uh, were there at least 10 years ago. And we think that the solution to that is reforming the police. I'd like to hear from you guys, especially reading from the East Bay Express, that you both have family members who were former Black Panther members. Um, and now, you know, with members in Oakland who are, uh, of the black community who feel strongly about being anti-police, period, and that that money should be redirected to other areas. I don't know. Reform is such a, 
a flaky concept. I don't even know if flaky is the word I'm looking for, but it's like um, when you're thinking about reform, right? Like, how can I, when we think about the police, right? The police came from slave patrols. Like, that's how it was all started, derived from slave patrols, right? So, how can, once again, we're talking about systems, how can we change the way something, how can we change the, like, this is fun, it's functioning the way it's supposed to, right? If, the, if it comes from slave patrols, which was designed to either like capture black folks, um, keep black, keep, obtain the property of slave owners, right? Like, how can we change? How can we reform that? How do you reform that? I don't, like, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how reform can work. Like, it's either revolution. I don't believe in reform. I would say revolution. I just don't believe in reform. Yeah. Like, I don't understand. Like, for me, it's, they say, oh, community policing. Like, that's the biggest thing. It's like, that's a Clinton era, like, topic. It's like, oh, we still need community policing. Like, what is that supposed to do? That means more cops actually on the streets. And what are they going to do when they're on the streets? If you think about New York, stop or frisk. Right? So that's what community policing means. I don't think you could reform, like what Delancey was saying, like an institution that was built out of slavery, right? And has been climbing and climbing and climbing. Like, like ain't nothing really changed but the size of the chain, you know, with the size of the gun, right? So they are more militarized. Um, and now today we're in a situation where more black men are incarcerated than you're under correctional control um, than we're enslaved. Right, and that isn't by accident, right? If we study our history, right? It's not like, you know, the civil rights movement just happened and we're victorious, now we could all, you know, sit in the same room, hold hands and, you know, sing songs together. Like, that didn't happen. Martin Luther King was killed. Like, do we have any <laughs> you know? examples of, like, where reform, where reform worked? Like, I don't I mean, I, it's like white supremacy. I don't think you could reform white supremacy, you know? Like, I don't think you could for, reform colonialism. Like, do we just put, like, someone else in? Like, do, I don't want black supremacy either. I mean, like, that's... I don't, like, <laughs> I don't want any form of supremacy. Right, so I mean, that's what... I yeah. mean, people might say, oh, we have Obama. <laughs> you know, Obama was the biggest reform, but Obama, That's like, the big... That's the highest example of reform, but Obama was still dropping drones on folks. Deported more undocumented people <laughs> than, like, Trump did, like, if you compare Obama's last year to this year, right? So, like, he, it's just... Uh, what I call like a intersectional imperialism, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like you put, if you put a person of color, it's like, all right, it's more excusable, but then Donald Trump is doing the same thing, you know, but- Just a different way. It's a different way, uh, right? More, yeah. or, more, more overt, you know, but Obama was kind of playing chess. He's real quiet, you know? He, <laughs> he has Jay-Z, you know, come to the White House, Kendrick, you know, he can shoot some hoops. So all of a sudden like drone strikes is like chill to people, you know? Yeah. I don't know if that... No, no, no. This has been an <laughs> ongoing conversation, especially in the progressive community. If you're just joining us, these are the star of the hosts of the Hella Black podcast, Blake Simons, Delancey Parham, John. Um, okay. So if not reform, you have a revolution, what, what do you create to still to deal with the problems that are still going to be there? I mean, what, what do you envision after that? What would you realistically hope we can get to? I mean, it's cause and effect, so I don't, I don't think it's necessarily like the same problems are going to be there, right? Like if, if the cause of, this, of most of the problems we see are this capitalistic, white supremacist, patriarchy system that we're dealing with, if we eradicate that system, we will know, we, like, at least, I'm not saying all our problems will be fixed, but a, a good amount of them will be. They'll no longer be there because this, we're removing the cause. If you, remove the, if you remove the cause, the effect has to change. So I don't... I don't I don't know, and like people talk, people ask us a lot about revolution, right? Like I would be, uh, I, I don't know what revolution exactly looks like. I know what no longer needs to be there, though. I know that I can't tell you what revolution is going to look like, but I know that it means this system no longer is intact, is no longer functioning, is no longer here. Mm -hmm. And I like to put in analogies, like if you've had a gun pointing at you for 24 years, a revolution changes, 
right? That the gun is taken away. Yeah, your material conditions are going to improve, but you're still going to have like some of those same thoughts from the system that was before. So I think that's why political education is so important. So we have to understand like these root issues in the society, right? From like racism, classism, homophobia, transphobia, right? Like just like like how ableist the society is, right? Um, so it's like we have to have political education on the issues as well, right? Um, because like, what is a revolution if it's just going to recreate oppression, right? So like, when we say revolution, it's not like we we don't want this like capitalist system, this colonial system to still exist. Like to me, that has to go, mm-hmm. like fundamentally. And I think we have to like, I think people get scared when we talk about revolution. Uh, yeah, people do get scared. Like people, because I think people think oh, revolution means everyone like it's synonymous it's, with violence. Like right. this is big war that's going to pop off. <laughs> but right? violence is literally like kids having to drink water. Yeah, violence don't have to it, be like you know. Yeah. Guns um, and fighting. Gentrification is violence. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, now there's a lot of people who think we're on the cusp of a revolution uh, since President Trump has been elected. And there's so many people who are uh, taking to the streets or going to Facebook or whatever or, or actually running for office. And so um, some people are under the impression that there's a revolution coming. There's something changing. I'd like to hear from you and what your thoughts are, if that is an example of a revolution or, um, you know, actions like the the coffee shop that I just read recently in Oakland, um, Hasta Muerta, right? Mm -hmm. That That black owned? Yeah, and the, like or black and brown, yeah. P- POC owned, and that they had refused or service, or it's a, a non-official policy of theirs that they try not to have uniformed police officers in the cafe to keep their customers safe. And it's become this huge controversial <laughs> thing now, in which I heard this morning that um, there's a coffee truck parked now in front of their cafe serving free coffee for people who, yeah, support <laughs> law enforcement, and, you know. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. Because the owners had actually asked a, a, a police officer to leave the cafe in case that they had made. So all you need to get free coffee is to go up there and say, I support law enforcement to the... to the Or red Make America Great Again cap. I think <laughs> there have been some protesters who are pro, you know, pro Donald Trump. So I, I just would like to ask you if you feel that same energy that a, a revolution is coming, if that's an example of a possible, you know, ignition to something big. I think revolution looks like small acts too. Like it isn't this like, I think people think revolution, they think this global, like wild shit is just popping off left and right. But I think it's like daily acts. Like how do we treat each other? You feel me? Like, how do we like, cause I feel like, in capitalism, the society, like, we're taught to, like, treat things like a transaction. Like, oh, you give me this, you give me that, all right. You know, it's like a very, like, tech, but, like, how do we treat each other? Mm-hmm. You know, like, things like that and just things like taking care of people. You know, like, like people in these houses camps, like, how you take care of, like, the most vulnerable people in the society? You know, so I think, like, revolution, it's like a process. It isn't something that just goes like that. You have to build towards it. So I think... Three years from now, like when the Black Lives Matter movement first started to where we are now, just the way I think I've seen a big shift in like politicization, especially from the youth. You know, like for me in high school, it was like, I remember Oscar Grant, but like there wasn't much politicization around that, in my opinion, compared to what it is now. Like this is the discussion. Like my little brother who's in high school, he knows about all this shit. I'm like, I had no idea at that time. So I think things are shifting where like the youth, you know, like the youth are really about that, you know, like they, they ain't tolerating this shit. You know, uh, yeah, and I, I think awareness is like the first step. I would say so. Like to see so many people, um, even we talk about we talk about the youth a lot. And I work with high school students. Like to see the state of consciousness that they're in at 15 years old. Like this is like 
the, the politics that I have right now and the conscious level of conscience that I have right now, I didn't reach this about two years ago. Like, so to see these kids, I, like, I'm definitely hopeful for the future. One thing I will say is like, something that does kind of scare me is this reactionary stuff, mostly coming from like white folks with this Trump stuff. Like, you know, like what, once again, we talk about like putting a face on the system, right? Like, so what happens once Trump isn't president anymore? And, and like, he's not spewing, this, he not spewing <laughs> right. these messages anymore. This like hateful logic. Are you going to go back to like, I would say what I, with my experience, like white folks, like they racism subtle. They don't like it like all in their faces. So I will say like for white folks, something I'm weary of is like, okay, once Trump is no longer in office, which could be two years from now, like what's going to happen? Are y'all going to go back to your, you know, to your comfort? I think that's what we see a lot from liberals too is like, oh, we just want Obama and Joe Biden back in office. Like, like that was an example of freedom. Like, honestly, that's the Black Lives Matter movement started <laughs> under Obama, right? Obama you know, <laughs> called, called them thugs, bro. Like, <laughs> well, uh, very, very parallel to the LGBTQ movement. I mean, you know, we've seen a fa very fast uh, progression of equal rights, but um, you know, just achieving some of those equal rights, and then it became, wow, we're done ish kind of almost and um uh it, it definitely wasn't a mic drop moment because then we saw several issues that we had kind of never really confronted in our our movement pop up and that really leads to why i brought you guys here is you know the we should be having these intersectional conversations because the things that the issues that we face as humans that live here the inequalities um the lgbtq community faces that the black community faces that, women face that. I mean, you know, any oppressed group to your point, and as long as those systems are in place, there's some form of inequality. John, any, anything else to add to the conversation before we open up to our audience for Q? Well, I really wanted to get into the Oakland uh, breakfast, I mean, the, the people's breakfast. Um, how did you, I mean, did, did you go through the soul searching that uh, uh, Michelle did, or, or did you just decide this is one of those actions we can do on a personal, interpersonal, you know, level to change things. So we was we were sitting in the studio in West Oakland, drinking some ham, yeah, and we <laughs> just like what? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Blake and I are, are two people that like we we are so critical of other people that it allows us to also hold ourselves accountable. Like, okay, we talk shit about such and such and such and such. What are we doing? And I think that's how we've been able to make strides in such a small amount of time. We're like, okay. We, we judge all these people for how they treat houseless folks for not giving these houseless folks the bare necessities, but really, we can damn near do that. And um, that's how it really just jumped off like that. And he did a post on Twitter, and we were able to like get our get our first little bit of funding from that, and then we just went out there and did it. Like It was, it was that simple for us. Um, I know people tend to ask us questions like this, and they do want us to be having some like deep, elaborate story, but it was just, we had, we seen a, a, a void that needed to be filled and we just went out there and did it. And I, sorry, okay. I was just gonna say, are, are there laws against doing this? Hell yeah, I mean like you just can't, <laughs> you can't, you can't, for like health reasons I believe, you can't just be going out there and feeding people. But like, I would say we definitely are more critical in our like prepping process than probably some of these restaurants are. And like if a cop was to come out to us on the street and be like, oh, you can't do this. I would, you know, I would say you probably owe me a thank you because I'm doing your job. You're here to. You're supposed to be here doing protect. You're supposed to be protecting and serving, and I'm out here serving and protecting the people. Which then they'll probably go and shoot me in my back because it's OPD. But that's what I would say to them. Uh, sorry, that was a very real moment for me. That uh, yeah. you know, you you casually say that, but that's in fact it a fact. Yeah. Um, Going back to the people's breakfast, and, and just for those who are joining us, we had talked about how these two gentlemen here just kind of organically created this organization to feed the homeless in, in Oakland. And um, 
I wanted to, I, I was going to joke about, you know, did you go out and did you get a permit and did you do all these things that you're supposed to do in order to feed people on the streets? Uh, and, uh, and how often do you guys do it? And what's usually the response from people that you're feeding? We've been doing this since like July, yeah. about once a month. Um, we fed probably over like 1,500 people since we started. Um, but it's not just food too. We have like hygiene packs. So we have like menstruation products, um, like giving out socks, like toothbrush, toothpaste. Clothes. Hella um, clothes, like blankets and things like that. So it's it's been real organic, like, and I think we get a lot of credit, but it's it's been, like, such a, a intergenerational effort. Like, your auntie's helping us out, your mom helping us, like. And then shout um, out to all the volunteers, too. A couple of volunteers, yeah. you know, who are, like, giving their Sunday mornings to come out and, like, do that work, you know. Um, but I think it's really, like, people want to see change. You know, or people want to make change. It's, like, the biggest, like, lesson I feel like I've gotten from this is, like, since creating it, so many people have reached out. Like, I didn't really think people was really going to gonna rock with us, like, the way they, they do. You know, like, it's, it's, you. like, we've had a lot of support from people, and I didn't think, I didn't think it was going to be like that, honestly. Um, but just seeing the amount of support and just seeing, like, how we're able, like, you know, like, there was one day just where it was hella hot in Oakland. It was, like, 100 degrees, and we just went and get water. And people were telling us, like, people are literally being taken to the hospital, like, from passing out, you know, from dehyd dehydration. So, like, when we talk about even, like, our last episode was about self-defense, like, that's a form of self-defense, like, preserving life, you feel me, making sure somebody has a meal, you know, that morning, because that might be the only meal they have. Um, so I think we, we've gotten a good response. And even um, last week when we were out there with Chuck, who's uh, one of our OGs out there, one of the encampments in Oakland, he was just saying, like, to hear it come from his mouth, like, of course, like, people on the internet always, like, oh, y'all doing such a good job and giving us kudos or whatever, but it's like, y'all not the people that we aiming to serve, which is dope. Like, I appreciate people, like, reaching out and, like, because that kind of keeps us going, but, like, we really need to hear it from the people that are out there, so when we get to see them, like, you know, like, thank us, hug us, and, like, you know, for the ones that can communicate it, telling us, you know, like, we really appreciate this, like, this is keeping us going, I think that's the most important piece, and I was, like, even now, we're, um, we're trying to get it to where we can do it more, because I know we feel... You talked about like feeling like afraid or something. I know one of the things that I feel the most is like shame that I can't do more. Mm -hmm. Even though like, you know, we have systems and somebody's getting paid to make sure they're taking care of the community of Oakland. Um, I, I wish that we could do more. Mm -hmm. And it's been growing. Like we made, we've made the same amount of food and we were able to feed like maybe three to four encampments. And like literally the last one, like we made the same amount of food, but we we're only able to feed one encampment. So like literally like this issue is not going away. Right. It's only growing more and more houseless people, more and more tense. Right. But like what we see is the same is the lack of response from the city. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's easy for someone to tweet a kudo to you guys for this. Is there some place they can go if they want to send money or see how they can help you? Yeah, we have a cash me. Um, so it's cash dot me slash dollar sign Blake don't crack. Or you could just follow us on Twitter or follow the podcast and reach out that way to like support monetarily or just even donate clothes, things like that. Can we join you? Can I join you? Can, yeah. I, can my wife and I join you? Can oh, we easily. do hot dogs? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, we were like... Hot we dogs for breakfast? That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> nah, people are grateful we for whatever. We have whatever. Breakfast. You know, yeah, like, when I'm hungry, I'll eat whatever, so... <laughs> we we <laughs> roll hot dogs in a bun. Go ahead. I'm about to cough. Excuse me. The the encampments you go to, are other people doing things as well? Or you, yeah. So you're not like the, the one... You see, uh, and I'm not, I'm not going... I don't want to come off as e egotistical, um, but, like, the folks that kind of do come out there, like, ours is deeper than just feeding these people. Like, we build. 
like we sit and have conversations like they'll be out there like smoking blunts and shit with us you know like we chilling with them like yeah. we treat them like you know like we praying and stuff afterwards or whatever like we really build in community like they know us when they see us when we coming through it's some people that only come through there every once a couple months they're not gonna recognize them like there have been times when there have been other folks out there which is like they're not gonna turn down no free food but when they come down to where we're at they're gonna hang out with us mm -hmm. like they're not just taking their stuff and going you know, so I do commit, like, I don't really care how the work gets done. I don't care if you're there for one time, if you're only there for a couple of minutes. If people are getting fed, people are getting fed. But with ours, it's a lot deeper. We want it to be a lot deeper than us just feeding people. Like, we want to be able to build with folks and also figure out, like, what other resources we can bring out there. Like, you know, they'll be able to tell us, like, okay, we need this. Like, hopefully this next time we can bring a barber out there because they were talking about how they need to be, how they need haircuts, how they need to shave. You know, so it's like when you take that, when you're really spending time in the community as opposed to just coming by, once every couple months or two times a year, you really get to figure out what these folks need and how you can really add value to their lives as opposed to just feeding them and then going on about your day. Because I think a lot of times, especially in the Bay Area, like there's so many uh, nonprofits and it's like, it's never asking people what they need, but telling it's them. telling them what yeah. they need and then like, oh, you need this, take this, but not like, how do we actually like, how is there a horizontal leadership in organizing? You know, like, how are we listening to folks? And, like, what do y'all need? You know what I'm saying? Like, what do y'all need to be supported, mm -hmm. right? So, like, I think even just going back to, like, what I was talking about, like, transactions, like, a lot of organizing is hell with transactions. I was like, all right, this is my philanthropy, like, and organizers become cool now. Like, so it's like, all right, yeah, I'm going to go out here, take a photo, have a hashtag, and, like, yeah, that was my work, and it's become, like, this weird social capital thing, like, yeah. and where organizing is really, like, glamorous. I'm like, this ain't glamorous. Like, this takes a toll, you know? So it's like... Yeah, I think that's like really important to just like just being for the people, by the people, you know, and supporting the people. Well, thank you so much. I mean, you guys are really hella dope and, and hella cool people. And uh, I, I, I really want to join you guys out there. We're going to open up for any questions before we end our segment, sadly. But, man, that went by too that fast. quick, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we need an hour and a half or You'll something. You'll have to come know? back. Yeah. Right. Any questions from our audience for Blake and Delancey? Oh, here's a mic for, yeah. for you, Rachel. Yeah, my, my question is around community police boards. And if you guys have seen, I know in San Francisco, they make a big effort to try and involve people from the communities to meet with the captains in the different districts and talk about what they need and how they can have better relations with the police. And I'm wondering if that's something that you guys have noticed in San Francisco or something you feel happens in Oakland. and if you feel like that's something that's, you know, helpful. I know, I can't really speak to the city situation, but I know in Oakland they just had a, there was something passed where there's like a civilian review board or something like that. Um, but like, we have that, and literally OPD just murdered somebody last week, a week and a half ago, and the person who's on the civilian review board is like, oh, this was justified, was on the news talking about that. I'm like, so what is the point, you know, of the civilian review board if they're just going to reaffirm the police? And what power do they actually have? Like, do they have power to remove police officers? Do they have power to fire officers, right? Do they have power to, like, actually prosecute? And usually it's not, right? So it's usually it's kind of like, all right, we have the civilian review board, so I think a lot of times activism will get pushed into that arena and forget about like many other ways to hold people accountable so i think i think anything the police give us like always be worried you know like in terms of a, a review board um because i think it's sometimes it's meant to like take away from like that radical energy is like oh no we'll form a task force <laughs> like how many task forces the opd had like how many like years have they been on federal oversight you know i, 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 <laughs> I would like... argue that even more than taking the heat off the police to have to address something it takes the heat off the elected 
officials. Right. Because they're able to say that's their matter. That's the go talk to the civilian. Yeah, board. exactly. You can go to their hearing. Mm-hmm. It's next week, and then they, I'm I'm talking purely my own. And opinion it's even that, but I, yeah, it's even like the public defender's office of like investigators. Like a lot of times, they're former cops, former FBI, former CIA. So they're like supposed to be on the public defender side, but then they have like this uh, pro police <laughs> background. You know, so I think even I know in the city of Berkeley they have a. a a review board, I believe, and in that review board, like one of the people who's on the civilian review board is like, I believe, related to a police officer on the force in Berkeley, or is like a retired cop. Can, can I so, ask if you had any involvement in, in any of the boards? Uh, so I just joined the community police board, and it's not a review board. It's actually a group of citizens that are concerned about what happens on the police force mm-hmm. and how we're dealing with gentrification and. Uh, certain populations and making sure that people are feeling like they're safe because I think especially in the Mission District here we have a lot of issues with mm-hmm. that um, uh, you know lo- there was just a shooting uh, you know a week ago uh, that happened and so there's I, I know there's public meetings that happen and those can get pretty heated but I think it's important for people to be able to say how they feel and be able to talk about things even if people don't agree but I think our, you know, community police board is what we're committed to is trying to we have people from all different neighborhoods who come together and say, how can we change the way that the police force behaves? You know, here's the way that our neighbors feel. Here's the way that uh, people we encounter every day through businesses feel. And what can you do as a police force to make sure we're getting accurate data every day and that we are actually being heard and things are changing? So, you know, I think that's something that for, you know, our neighborhoods has been really positive to feel like we even have a voice and that something's actually being done Uh, because usually it's, you know, you come to a meeting and, you know, I've got a past with the police, so I haven't always been the fondest of them back in the day. But I think it's important that people start conversations and listen to each other and make sure that things are happening. And I think that's a little bit different than a review board. And I think it's important to really diversify who's on those boards as well. So, you know, it's uh, it's something maybe uh, Oakland could benefit from because I've seen a lot of benefit in our neighborhoods from it, especially in the mission. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. Babe, I 
think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. We're back in the tune-in studios and still have no phone lines, so not talking about anything else that's happening around the country, which might be a good thing, but offering the space and the platform for local LGBTQ dignitaries, uh, cultural icons, performers, activists, all of them, to come here to the tune-in studios to check it out and to talk about themselves and their work and share with you on Progressive Voices Network. So today is a very special guest, someone who I've had the pleasure of working with and alongside for a few years now, and I can't believe it, uh, from the broadcasting side when we do the Pride Parade broadcast together. She's uh, been around in the community doing incredible work and giving back for decades and a very loved and cherished person in the San Francisco Bay Area. I would have to say she is the first woman of San Francisco, and that's Donna Sachet. Donna, welcome. Thank you so much. I don't know which one of those letters I am, yeah, I don't know P, <laughs> but I think I'm several of them, and I love that. Our diversity is our strength. You truly are. You truly are. Uh, so the purpose, you know, bringing you here on the show is to, again, introduce you to new people who are now listening to podcasting or tuning into Progressive Voices Network, um, and also to chat and catch up. I feel like it's been a while. Especially when we work on an annual project, you know, we're in, immersed in it for a couple of weeks and then those days and then the day of the broadcast where just that's all we do. And then I don't see you for months. So, know. you know, we get a little disconnected, but we're both very busy and I just I wonderful, wonderful success you're having. I, I love that. Thank you. Thank you. So let's get to know you on a personal level or re get to know you. Um, you came to San Francisco several years ago. It's been 25 great years, and I tell you, I, I moved a lot as a kid, and, you know, it was not, nothing to do with military, but just my parents were always moving, opportunistic, and I didn't even have long-term friendships because you keep moving. You know, it's like, oh, love you, but I gotta go, and then you write two letters, and you never hear from them again. And now, in San Francisco, within a few years, there were just these deep relationships, and I felt that I wasn't just taking for the city, but I was giving back to the city. And that two-way uh, street really just, it, just in, it made San Francisco very important to me. And I found my home, I think is what I say. You know, Armistead Boffin uses that phrase of your biological family and your logical family. Well, <laughs> I've never had a really strong biological one, but boy, did I find a logical one here. And they're logical but crazy. <laughs> so where did you come from? I was born in the South. Uh, Georgia, South Carolina, and my parents were very Southern. We never moved above the Mason-Dixon line. So, <laughs> you know, and all that kind of stuff. And people say, oh, I love the South. It's so beautiful. There are beautiful things to it, but it's a thin veneer. There's a lot of hatred, a lot of history that just, it, it just makes it very difficult. And the, the gay-lesbian thing was never really brought to verbalization even, but I knew that I was different, and it, it was just always a struggle. So I had to, when I went to college, I got as far away as I could, but still in the South, went to Vanderbilt, which is in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, began to raise, my horizons got bigger and I went to Europe and found out there are different ways to do things and different ways to think. 
and found uh, acceptance and, and, and celebration here in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, when you mentioned about feeling like you were different growing up, especially in the South, even though you didn't verbalize whatever that was, I would imagine that, you know, you were into music or you were into things that might have been different from everyone else around you. Absolutely. It's funny. I went to Tommy Toon a couple of nights ago because he was in town and he's, he's from a small town in Texas. And he says in his show that, you know, like any Texas boy, my father wanted me to go to Broadway and sing and dance in a show, which is so <laughs> ridiculous. You have no father in Texas wants that. And in, in the South, I mean, my, I'm sure they were just so disappointed. They wanted me to do all this stuff. But I loved theater. I loved uh fashion how did where did that come from you know and i love the big city i mean i couldn't wait to get into a big city we lived in small towns and you know television was theater and but but i saw myself on those shows and i you know i guess like every uh, budding drag queen i did the thing with my the towel on my head looking in the bathroom and being dinah ross i ain't no mountain (laughs) so somewhere that bit and and it just kept growing and i had to keep it so secret because it was not what anybody accepted and I was smart, so I did well in school, but I was not uh, the the A crowd. I was always outside and trying to find my way. What about falling in love for the first time? Mm-hmm. Mm. I remember when I fell in love with you. <laughs> 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 Nothing, it didn't really work. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I mean, I have f- come to find that there, there are just so many kinds of love. And again, back to the biological and logical, you know, you, we'll always love our families for some in some way because it's blood and, mm-hmm. it, and we grew up together and I have a, a brother who's gay and we were, we are close to some extent but there are so many other ways to love and I've had such deep friendships people that were there in my hour need and I feel like in my life I've been able to be a true friend to, to a number of people and then that love of community that you know we are nothing without un- uniting and mm-hmm. and quit just you know destroying each other but say what, what's our common elements what's our common goals so that kind of love but you know falling in love personally it just it when you're as public and as busy as i am it's very hard to do yeah. so yeah I, I don't really pursue that uh you got it no worries uh and i love the answer and i think that that's what i was going to refer to anyway was your love for community and how Donna Sachet became Donna Sachet. Yeah. How did Donna form? Well, I, I I often say, you know, one of my first interviews when I was, I think it was a radio thing, and I, I went and I put earrings on, although it was radio, because I had to have that pinch on my ear to make remind me I'm a tri-queen. <laughs> I, don't I don't do that anymore, but it's it, you still have to remind yourself. And I always say I don't even put drag on anymore. I let it out. Because oh. that character was always there. And in the South, as I was saying, it was beaten down, or my family was beaten down. But now... I mean, nobody really wants, they want Donna. They they love that. And, and I know if I go to an event, I can maybe, maybe take that event up a couple of notches. And if I'm on a show or part of, part of some event, I, I know that I can do something with the, the, the notoriety or whatever I have. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, that's, a, that's a big part of it. Just kind of grew very quickly. And success breeds success. You know, when I was uh, selected Miss Gay San Francisco within two years of being here, it was like against a field of like eight contestants. I, I was kind of surprised, and some, so were some of them. <laughs> but then you think, okay, now I've got this organization behind me. I can throw an event, and those people at least will come, and then other people will come. And then, you know, I've, I've done things like the Songs of the Season that I'm so proud of. 25 years of a holiday cabaret show. Started right. around the piano with, you know, several singers and people throwing money in a jar. And then the point where, you know, making $50,000 for the AIDS Emergency Fund, it was just powerful. Right. So 25 years of uh, being here in San Francisco, and I would imagine 25 years, all of those years, dedicated and committed to community performing, uh, being Donna Sachet, raising money for the community. 
Do you have any idea how much money you have raised in 25 years? I mean, cumulatively. Yeah, no, I've never really added that up. And I, I've heard a couple of people in radio or even interviewed in person. They say, oh, this is the million-dollar girl or something. She's raised that much. None of us raise it alone. I certainly do. Maybe maybe Elton John or you know somebody at that level. But none of us do it alone. I have been the part of so many events and single events that were probably a million dollars. But we're all a part of it, and not just the people on stage. I mean, I don't sound great unless the sound person's back there, and there's the right accompanist, and and all those kind of things, the right selection of music. It, it's a team effort, and uh, I wish more people would realize that. Sometimes mm-hmm. people say, "Oh, I wish I could sing." I'm I'm glad you don't. I'm glad you know what to do with the knobs <laughs> on the thing and make me sound better. You know, we all have a role. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's one of the things I actually I really love about your performances that you actually perform and you sing and and then what a surprise your gay brother and uh, in the uh, recent songs of the se- uh, season concert that I w- had the amazing opportunity to be at thank you for getting us sure. access at very last minute because my wife went crazy um I, I didn't even know that you know both of you performed that was just so incredible but my question you know, is about raising the money for a cause. Uh, I mean, I think throughout the 25 years, there was there was a lot of emphasis of raising money for HIV AIDS or, um, you know, uh, many things. I feel like you're pretty diverse in what you raise money for. So have the issues evolved for you? Well, I think I've evolved in my attention to different uh, causes as the committee has. You know, when I first moved to San Francisco, I'll never forget coming to the Castro and being all excited in the Castro, and there were so many people walking with walkers, with canes, sad expressions on their faces, and I didn't really expect that, and I, I don't know. So you're right away, what do I need to do? We need to raise money for AIDS. We need to give services. We need to recognize something the national, the federal government's ignoring. So you're pushed into that. But then as you get into it more, there are also specific needs within that community. What about you know culturally appropriate uh, counseling for somebody who can't even speak English that needs that help or, or someone from another community? And then as I grew into it more, there are very specific transgender uh, needs that are finally being somewhat addressed today that we're just kind of on the back shelf oh we yeah we mm-hmm. have tea in the in the phrase but what is the tea about and then you get to know people and you you find their specific causes and then it goes to the next thing that you know we as lgbtq people also are hungry sometimes mm-hmm. homeless sometimes have uh, mental health issues or or drug uh, uh, dependencies so all of those things that uh, intersect and so you find agencies that do that and Believe me, when I got here, too, I remember that first booklet I, I picked up, and it had all the list of all the agencies in San Francisco. I mean, there were, like, I don't know, maybe 100. It was so many of them. And you, I, I questioned, it's like, do we need that many agencies? And we still need them because sometimes they specifically address a cause that nobody else does. And that's why the parade's so wonderful. You know, we, we watch those big groups come by. Well, wonderful, you know, huge contingents, two blocks long. And then that group comes with six people for the mm-hmm. first time in the parade. Right. And they look over, hoping that we'll, it, I, I just still get emotional. They're right. great groups. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of the changes, I, I do want to touch on on that and and hear your perspective of how our community has changed. But we're going to take a quick short break right here. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with the first woman of San Francisco, Donna Sachet. Don't go away. Welcome back. You're listening to the Michelle Miao Show here on Progressive Voices Network. I'm Michelle Miao and our special guest in studio. I know it feels so good to say in studio 
um, in studio that is in the tune-in facilities overlooking the San Francisco Giants Stadium is Donna Sachet, the first woman, the first lady, the lady of San Francisco. Uh, Donna, many, many, many fans over the years, and I feel like many of your fans have grown up with you. You continue to make new fans or continue to uh, do so many things for our community, so you're the perfect person to ask about these changes. I feel like our community has progressed in a lot of ways, like milestones of, you know, the equal rights fight, such as marriage equality, more access and resources for our community, uh, and and also politically, right? I mean, we went from a time in which uh, being LGBTQ was not popular or we couldn't get a candidate on uh, the ballot to be taken seriously to being able to elect a, a gay political official to now where we have several, several LGBTQ political candidates and, and it gets even more diverse. And I think that um, the diversity is great, but also can make it very competitive to the point where we're now, I think, having some kind of a crisis and having conversations about prioritizing what matters to our community. So how do you balance that or what are your feelings about, you know, the 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 growing pains of success? Well, I'll go back to, you know, we need to make more of an effort to find what we have in common rather than what it separates us. And, you know, there's so many controversies right now, but, you know, what to do with uh, the Castro because it's changing. And there are nights when you're in what you perceived or your perception was a gay bar, and suddenly there are people around, and you don't, these aren't gay people. Am I being invaded or have I accomplished our goal that we are just a bar that have people are coming to have a good time and drink and and enjoy uh, each other's company? There's, There's a lot of debates about that, but Rather than try and find what's separating us, why can't we find the things that have in common? And, you know, the like High Tops is an example. Here's a sports bar. And I was in there recently for a, a fundraiser, and that, that was just a bunch of people having a great time. I n- didn't know a lot of people, but they knew me because I have a, a, a public image, I guess. But um, it was just a lot of people having a great time with sports on the on the monitors, I had to ask what some of the sports were. Frankly, I mean, it's not my. But have fun with it and enjoy the the, the exposure to a different uh, uh, style. Just like music, you know, people think, uh, you know, I don't, oh, don't want to go to uh, a show because it's uh, all that you know cabaret music and people torch songs and everything. Well, why, why not go and you may not like every song, but you may like somebody's delivery or somebody's uh, presence or somebody's uh, the choice of music, and expose yourself to it. Travel and and enjoy. Find out that there are different ways to do things, and some of them might be better than what you were trying. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, yeah, the, the community is changing, and it ha- continues to change. But those who try to you know grind their their heels in the sand and say no, 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 I'm not going to go, are really losing out. Um, I, I I love the phrase my grandmother used to say that there are two kinds of change: change you like, and change you get used to. It's going to change, you know. So let's find out how can we be a part of the change. Maybe help steer it a little bit, or be more inclusive. But don't don't. Put your head, head, head mm-hmm. in the sand. I don't know if you are are publicly um, having conversations about the mayoral race here in San Francisco, um, but it's there's an you know exciting thing happening. A diverse group of candidates who are running for mayor of San Francisco. Um, are you commenting publicly? I'm I'm very much uh, uh, an endorser of one of the candidates. I don't know how political you want to get, but you know uh, Mark Leno's been a friend of mine for years, and 
I saw him work within the supervisorial position he had. And then when he went to the state assembly, it was he was the first. There were two uh, gay elected officials at that time at the state assembly level. We were thrilled. I, I took a bunch of friends. We took a limousine up there. And, you know, I was in drag and just had a great time, met his family and saw things really melting and changing. And then he went into the state senate. And then at the same time, there's all that backlash. Then Schwarzenegger comes in and vetoes every other piece of legislation he got passed. So it continues to be a struggle. But we've got to celebrate those successes and share them with our friends. And somebody said the other day at a luncheon I was at that if we don't have a seat at the table, we might be dinner at that table. Mm. You know, I mean, they're going to eat us alive. So we have mm-hmm. to have a place. And as much as I champion our our straight and uh, otherwise allies, you know, those are people maybe that are in a position that could do something we couldn't. I, I love that. But we need, we, the, the members of this community, need a place at the table. Just when we do the parade, aren't you thrilled that it's you and me? It's, 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 and right. we have guests that come on the air with us. We are members of that community. When that group goes by, I was a member of that group one time. Right? I was thinking about taking French. Or I was thinking about joining the, the rugby team. It, there's, it's available. And I don't know if that answers your question, but the, the, you're right. This mayoral race represents so much that's right. When Nancy Pelosi went to Congress, there was nobody like her. She was a straight ally that talked about AIDS, that talked about her community, brought San Francisco values. And we say that proudly. Many people in the, in the Congress were saying, San Francisco values. You know? But we champion it. Mm-hmm. And we lead the country. Some of the things that start here roll across the country and become the new standard. Mm-hmm. And now it is to the point where it's not just electing straight allies. It's electing us mm-hmm. and people that have walked the streets that we've walked and have suffered the things we've suffered and, and enjoyed the successes we have. Yeah, it's been a tough conversation. And um, I've just been not laid back, but, you know, obviously being a member of the media, um, I, I, there's no public endorsing yeah. for most of us who are part of the media. But at the same time, I, my vote still counts. So uh, I like to have open conversations and, and talk to those who are able to publicly endorse. Um, there's, I, there's this conversation that's oddly happening, you know, that some people will say they're not voting for Mark Leno because he's white. Or, you know, because he's a cisgender, gay white man. And I think that that's very problematic and troublesome in terms of that being the sole reason why you wouldn't vote for a candidate. I feel like Mark uh, and Mark supporters, we should uh, be very vocal about the successes and what he's brought to the table as a gay man and that having a gay mayor for San Francisco is, it's now's the time. And, and on the flip side, there are people from our community, they're saying, I'm not gonna vote for him just because he's gay. Well, I didn't ask you to. I, there are some, some people that have run for office that were gay, lesbian, transgender, whatever it might be, that were not the right one for that office or for that time or for that city or whatever it might be, or, or had skeletons in their closet that just, they shouldn't have even run, whatever. But this is the right man for the right job at the right time. We couldn't be more poised for success with him in, in the mayor's office. And at the same time, I think we need to be uh, healthy in our debates. I, I, I respect you and many people that are in positions that they cannot really openly endorse because it comes with too much gravity with the position they have or the public office or public uh, perception they have. But those of us who can, get out there and let people know how you're going to vote and who you're behind because mm-hmm. people are looking for leadership in that way too. They don't really know 
that maybe they don't have time or they don't have the desire or even the, the information to research it more thoroughly. But if this person says, well, I don't know, I'm, I'll, I'll go with that. You know, we are in a position of leadership. People look to us. So make a stand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will say, you know, Mark has been consistent with uh, being able to legislate policies that are inclusive. He's done a lot for the transgender community in terms of inclusion in California's textbook and in history. He's done a lot in, in trying to pass policies that matter to the environment, to education, to And haven't to you healthcare. seen them everywhere in our community? There's so many of these that when election time comes, like, oh, that's what she looks like. That's what right. she looks like. He's been everywhere to begin with, with yeah. birthday parties and celebrations, marrying yeah. people. And, I, yeah. you know, he's part of us. Yeah, yeah. So to, to add to that, the San Francisco values, LGBTQ uh you know, issues, I guess, Uh, we as voters, what are the things that matter to us right now as far as like, you know, LGBTQ issues in San Francisco? Well, I I really hate it when I hear some of our people, our leaders or or just members of our community saying, well, you know, what is there left to fight for, really? I mean, we have, we have the, you know, the marriage, we have this, we have that. Okay, you know what? Those were huge things. We were criminals 30 years ago on the on the books we were criminals we were we could be consigned to you know mental health but so we've made some major strides but th- that backlash keeps coming i mean everything that's happening on the federal government level right now is trying to to push all that back so we need to to take the stand and protect those rights we've rewon and at the same time as i was saying before we've emerged as part of a lot of things we're part of the homeless issue we're part of the mental health issue we're part of the substance abuse issue and so how can we attack that with with unity with our straight allies with other people that believe in that recently uh, positive resource center merged with aids emergency fund and the baker house and baker street Baker Street was a uh, organization to help people with with uh, drug abuse, with uh, with substance abuse issues, and so that they're by folding that in, they intersect there. AIDS Emergency Fund, directly related to AIDS, always has been, you know, to help people that uh, needed those services to help them with their lives, really to keep their life and keep in San Francisco. So that has been folded in. And then Positive Resource Center has this great uh, dual program that they not only help you if you have to go out from work. With disability, what, where are the, where are the benefits? What, how do I continue to live? But also, if you want to return to work, but maybe I want to return to work, maybe in a different career. How do mm-hmm. I get that training? Mm-hmm. So all that merge together intersects with all these problems that so many people have that happen to be LGBT problems as well. Very, very well said. Thank you, thank you so much for that perspective. Now back to you as we wind down our interview. Um, I noticed in the last couple of years you've been doing a little bit of transitioning that's very much focused on you um, as a as a performer, community activist, and you know dialing back on some stuff and moving forward on some some other projects. What can you tell us? Gosh, you're so perceptive. <laughs> I wish <laughs> I wish more people got it because sometimes people will see a little something and think, "Oh, Don, are you quitting?" Uh, did you read the whole thing? I, I am trying to transition. I value my position as a performer. I love being known as a live singer and a, a comic and witty and all that. So, I mean, I want to use that. But I also think that there are a lot of new people coming up that, you know, Songs of Season for 25 years, I can't say it was the premiere show, but it was a, a show that probably uh, impeded other people saying, oh, I want to do a holiday show. Well, guess what? It's over now. They can do a holiday show. They can ask me to come sing at their show or whatever. So that was one of the reasons 25 years seemed like a great time to wrap that up and move on to other things. And interestingly, you know, uh, oftentimes in my comedy, I would say songs of this. I mean, songs for no reason. And I'd make a mistake and say something like that because people had joked about it. Well, now the Richmond Hermit Aid Foundation, which is a great organization that takes top talent and brings to San Francisco, puts on a cabaret show. 
came to me and they said, we want to do something, but like comedy, a little bit different. I said, well, it should be Songs for No Reason. They jumped on it, and now we're <laughs> going to do Songs for No Reason, April 20th at the Russian Center. And, you know, just to see the people that signed on right away. Bruce Valanche, within minutes, said, sure, I want to be there. Uh, Sean Ryan, a, a great singer that's done comic things. Uh, Shan Carr, who's done cruises all over the world, is, is uh, signing on with us. Uh, Ron B. and um, Kitty uh, Tapata. It, it, it's lining up to be a very fun show. Donna, thank you so much for dropping by. Tune in. Thank you. Don't go away. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices.